The Bulletin. Right, uh, Bulletin this morning is uh, with Aidan McLaughlin on this uh, Monday. We can look at uh, what's uh, been happening over the weekend. Uh, first of all, uh, Aidan, good morning to you. We can stay on the subject of cricket. I asked Ben Strang just a moment or two ago about uh, the one-day international game. Does it prove in its, uh, its attention of the modern-day cricket fan again? And do you think it will survive, I guess? Yeah, morning to you, Smithy, and welcome back. Um, yeah, I've been having a good think about this recently, I must be honest. And, you know, I think sometimes in life less is more. And I think the fact that we've been a little bit starved of uh, one-day cricket in recent years, um, since since 2019, really, and there has been a little bit more emphasis on the T20 game. I mean, I I really enjoyed the tournament. I mean, there weren't as many close finishes as I would have liked to have seen. I'm sure as many of us would like to have seen. So, um, but I do think it it has actually. Uh, regenerated uh, a bit of love for the for the one day game I, I believe halfway through the group stages um, viewing numbers were significantly up on 2019 and yes there's a reason for that because of course it was held in India and India were doing very well um, but I think that um, I think I don't think that the game is in any danger for a while yet you know the uh, the, there's some TV rights deals which are struck through not only for 2027, but I think the UK and some other nations have, have, have struck a deal through to 2031. So the, the, the one-day World Cup isn't going anywhere. Um, and I just mm. think that there were enough good matches in that World Cup um, for people to go, you know, yeah, let's get back into one-day mode and let's see a bit more one-day cricket versus T20 cricket. What I like about the 50-over game is that you can be in trouble and uh, recover uh, and get out of trouble and still uh, be in a situation where, you know, through good play, um, you can still win the game. And I saw that on a number of occasions. I mean, you know, the the most obvious one is uh, Australia against Afghanistan, deep in it, but managed to dig themselves out of it over a period of time. That became quite fascinating. I think the other thing too, Aidan, as long as, People in India and the Indian cricket team want to play 50-over cricket. I think it's relatively safe. I just got a message this morning saying 300 million fans tuned in for the ICC Men's Cricket World Cup final, which is the biggest event in Indian TV history. If India's uh, good with it, I think we're all good with it, aren't we? Oh, pretty much. I I think you're absolutely right. And um, I, I think that was one of the benefits of the Indian team doing so well. And yes, they lost the final. We all know um, it wasn't the fairy tale finish, but they played so well. And I, as I said in your absence, you know, to Daniel once, I, I really enjoyed the brand of cricket they played. Um, not mm. only up top, but I just love their bowling attack. I love the variety, and I love the, you know, I remember when they were in that semi-final, um, they, the New Zealanders, although yes, they had a chance, you really couldn't see them coming back because of that amazing bowling lineup that the Indians have. And you're right, as long as the Indian public enjoy that brand of cricket and enjoy watching their team. The, the game is safe for many years to come, I think. To your point about, um, you know, you can be in trouble, you can recover. I think, you know, it's not that long ago that people were kind of saying, oh, Kane Williamson, maybe you should step aside from the T20 game. But people would never say that about the 50-over game because how many times have we seen Kane Williamson come in and slowly construct and innings, and before you know it, at the end of that innings, he's over 100 strike rate. He's got that perfect ability to time an innings, mm. and that is his forte in, in 50 over cricket. Struck the ball beautifully. 
game, Williamson, despite still having a sore knee and uh, a dodgy hand as well. His timing was was quite impeccable in the, at the innings that he played and the way, as you say, him, his ability to see through a situation and recognise the fact that you've got a little bit longer than you think uh, most times yeah. when you're out in the middle. Um, other things that have uh, happened, of course, uh, it's an interesting thing for Phil War, who's the new CEO of Australian Rugby and what a turmoil, tumultuous situation they've been through. But they're going to seek a, a million bucks in compensation from France after a contracting blunder. What's this about? <laughs> well, he probably needs that because they've also just secured, as I understand it, an $80 million uh, overdraft facility um, to fund their various uh, costs over the next wee while. So a million dollars wouldn't be uh, a bad thing because it's going to be some pretty hefty interest costs, I think. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, this is a weird one, isn't it? Because it seems that there's been a handshake deal with the French rugby authorities over a fee you know, for a match fee, which I just find absolutely incredible in this day and age that, you know, you, you, you suddenly get down the line, you realise there's nothing in writing, and then you go you go back to the source and say, actually, you owe, us a, you owe us a million for that. So I just find it a very, very bizarre situation that you wouldn't actually enter into uh, a, a very formal and very stringent uh, agreement to make sure you get your money. So what chance they actually have of getting that million back, I have no idea. Um, but it's amazing that it's even got to that stage. And it probably and it probably actually sums up the last couple of years of Australian rugby because it has been nothing short of a, a laughing stock, really. And now the likes of Phil War, um, Daniel Herbert, they, they're coming in and they're going to have to clean up this mess. And this is step number one, I guess. Why do they not have a Silver Lake type of, uh, arrangement? Are they just not marketable as, as much as us globally or what? Well, my understanding is that they are—they have looked at that, and they continue to look at it. But I think you're right. I think the the magic of the All Blacks brand, and it is a brand these days. You know, we have to accept that. Um, is that air of invincibility? Um, it's a brand that is known throughout the world, and Rugby Australia simply doesn't have that. So they have to, I guess, approach these private equity companies in a very different way. They can't pretend to be the All Blacks. Um, and probably now, for a couple of years, they are not be, going to be able to get what they see as their own market value because of the, the, the fact that the team has dwindled so much. It failed to fire at the World Cup, had a terrible World Cup. So I think they almost need to get past the British and Irish Lions tour in a couple of years. Mm. And then if they have, you know, even if they lose the Series 2-1, if they can somehow revitalise the Australian national team on the world stage and get plenty of eyes towards them, Maybe that's the time to go back in and have some more serious conversations about private equity. But I, I do think it is something that they have looked at and they will continue to try and find a good option there. 80 million bucks seems like a huge uh, overdraft, the way that sport's heading at the moment. But we'll keep a, an eye on that. Right, let's, uh, it doesn't matter where you are in the world, uh, you'll always find a headline about uh, rugby league. And this one, of course, is about New Zealand rugby league uh, and a coaching scenario now, which is... Uh, turned into yet another schmozzle by the sound of it. Yeah, it has really. Um, I think the the days have gone on since uh, Michael Maguire stepped down. Um, At first I was pretty frustrated, like I'm sure most uh, Kiwi Rugby League fans were. But the more and more I think about it and the more and more I listen to people um, like Greg Peters, the CEO of New Zealand Rugby League, um, the more I think that this is the, the conclusion that had to be reached. Um, on the face of it, can a man like Michael Maguire do both jobs? Yes. Um, we've seen plenty of people uh, be full-time 
club coaches and also do international things. But we also have to look, I guess, at what New Zealand Rugby League wants. And for them, this is a full-time role. It is not acceptable to them as employers that there is effectively a job share arrangement um, with New South Wales. And ultimately, if they're the employer and that's how they feel and they regard international rugby as the pinnacle, as so many people uh, want it to be, although let's be honest, in Australia it simply isn't, but it's New Zealand Rugby League's right to, to turn around and say, look, that's fine if you want to take that job, but you're not going to keep our job as well. We want you 100% focused. So um, I think you know everyone concerned will be disappointed that Michael Maguire uh, has stepped away, but ultimately it is his choice. As Greg Peters has said, he could have stayed. He could have made the choice to say no to, um, to New South Wales. He didn't. Um, so I think we move on. Um, sad though it is to lose a man of that ability and someone who has brought success already. Speaking of uh, losing men with ability and profile, uh, old Tell, Tell Terry Venable's gone. Old Tell, yeah, that was. Um, I didn't actually realise. I hadn't picked up on the fact that he'd had a bit of a, you know, quite a long-standing illness. So that was a, a real surprise this morning when I read that news that he passed away at the age of eighty. But yeah, one of my early memories, I remember watching uh, the 1982 uh, FA Cup final and it was Spurs against QPR and Terry Venables was the, the manager of QPR. And then within a couple of years, he was a real groundbreaking manager over there in the UK because um, he was plucked from, from there and he became the Barcelona manager in, I think it was 1984. Uh, and he inherited a team there that um, Diego, Mado- Diego Maradona had just left. He'd gone to Italy um, but he brought success to that uh, to, to that sleeping giant as it was. I don't think Barcelona had won a, a league title in over 10 years, and within a couple of years, El Tell had uh, brought them some success. Um, also really well remembered for his time with Spurs uh, in the late 80s and early 90s, and then, of course, England in the, in the mid-90s as well. So someone who um, had real personality as a football manager, you know, the likes of Brian Clough and him, really had that personality about them, very different personalities. But also both of those managers um, had had really interesting ways of setting up their team to play. You know, if I think back to his time as England manager, he got that England team moved away from a traditional 4-4-2 to play a more continental brand of football. And guess what? You know, it brought success. They got to the semi-finals of mm. the European Championships. And um, yeah, arguably a couple of, a couple of centimetres away from... from Actually, uh, getting through to the final, Paul Gascon, I remember, with the outstretched leg, which would have prevented that uh, penalty shootout and things could have been very different. But, yeah, just um, just a great character of the game and, um, yeah, a really good manager. And just finally, news coming through this morning, which I'm sure you're aware of, of New Zealand about to, uh, well, have been invited to play four tests uh, in Australia in the 26-27 summer of cricket, which is... Um, you know, after our last performance over there, which was most disappointing, uh, it's quite a good uh, vote of confidence, including, of course, a Boxing Day test. So four tests in Australia. Yeah, it is good. And I mean, you know, I, I remember, uh, I know you were over there for that, that previous test series, and I think we were all really disappointed at how that developed, um, especially because the Black Caps had gone into it in, in good form, um, but things just fell apart, really, didn't they? So... 
of course, a lot of the players, most of the players probably that played in that series will have moved on by then, um, mostly due to age um, and mm. retirements. So it will be interesting just to see how they, they, they get on over there. But I think, yeah, a really important thing is a four-test series. I can't actually remember too many four-test series recently. It tends to be two or three. Um, so to, to, to get that uh, invitation over and have the Boxing Day test, of course, is going to bring a lot of people over from New Zealand um, between December and January. And, um, yeah, I think it's a really, really good opportunity for the, for the test game, which is, is always important for, for us traditionalists. Yep, two Boxing Day, uh, two uh, Melbourne tests, actually, so effectively two Boxing Day tests of environment uh, because I've got uh, the 150th anniversary, so it's England against Australia in March as well at the MCG. So save your bickies, so I would be thinking. Uh, looking forward to that, sports fans. Uh, good on you, mate. Uh, Aidan, thanks very much for joining us this morning, and uh, we'll catch up shortly, I'm sure. Will do, Smithy. Thanks a lot. Yes. Yep, it's uh, 10.51 here on SCNZ.